it was lots of careful politics on my part to keep these two lives separate. Um, the life that involved going to church, going to a wonderful Bible study, being surrounded by faithful, wonderful men and women who later became a very influential part of my um, walk with Christ. But um, at the same time, living this other life, which was definitively not Christian. Hello, fellow travelers. This is David Woods, your host and trusted guide. Welcome to our little fellowship as we gather to discuss the Christian life in a post-Christian world. We are broadcasting from Babylon with love. My friends, I am thrilled, thrilled. And I always say that, I've noticed, but I am thrilled uh, to have our special first-time guest on today. This has become a colleague, a dear friend, and a part of our, our church here at the old uh, Zoe House Church. Um, but he does not hail from the area. He hails from far, far away. He is, uh, he is a man of many talents, a man of many experiences, a man of not too many names. <laughs> he Depends is if, uh, yeah. he is i don't remember his middle name but he is jordan dobbins <laughs> from england that jordan welcome to the podcast hello i'm jordan dobbins from england what's your middle name jordan dobbins um it's weird it's mansell 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 like uh, like man oh and i, I kind of remember this but why why is it why do you have a middle name mansell so it's it's a family thing so my dad is brian mansell dobbins and then i believe it's my nan's maiden name on my dad's side of the family okay some kind of Irish thing, I think. So you're British Irish. British, I mean, yeah. What do, they my, call, my family, what do you call yourselves? <clears throat> uh, you look Irish. People don't know this, but I'm, you're a red. Yeah, I'm. I look like I was born in the furnaces <laughs> of Ireland, or that's definitely not the right way of saying that. But yeah, I, I have. I have the complexion to be Irish. Um, I think I go. My family is definitely Irish a, a couple, few generations back, but okay. they came over. They all reside in Liverpool now on my dad's side. Okay. So at some point they came over and I think my granddad's side built the canals that led up to Manchester and it wow. was like a bit of a nomadic existence. Yeah. And eventually you just reach the end, which was Liverpool, and you kind of stay there. That's amazing. A Northern Irish, uh, Catholic Irish. I, we were Catholic Irish, yeah. I believe. Uh, there was. I have an ancestor, I'm told. My sister did all the yeah, family yeah. tree stuff. Patrick Ignatius Quinn. What a name! What a name! I know. Oh my gosh! But That's she, awesome. but she was on a, she was on holiday. I think she's in Czechoslovakia somewhere, and she bumped into an Irish person, and she just learned this information, and she went, "Oh, um, you'll like this Irish person I've met. Um, <laughs> I have an ancestor called Patrick Ignatius Quinn, Ig Ignatius Quinn, and they're like, oh yeah, we hate the Quins. <laughs> 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 they were like awful um, shipbuilder type they people. They were the horrible. Were they like uh, like landowner estate? They owner, must. Like, I mean, you terrible. don't hate a non-landowner, just... right? <laughs> Probably. If you're Irish, it's got to be a landowner. Yeah, for sure. I think. I don't know. So I never bring that up too much. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so that's that's my family, and then uh, my nan's side, the family. Um, actually, Nan's I, side means what? Oh, uh, grandmothers. On your mom? Oh, on my, side? on my, this is still my dad's side. Okay, on your dad's side. And and so she had, uh, she's the main kind of Catholic Irish family, um, and they moved like many Irish people did and settled in Liverpool in the northwest. It's only a short, uh, geographically speaking, it's just 
a hop and a skip over the Irish Sea. Give me a flavor of uh, life in Liverpool. What does it mean to be from Liverpool? This is a very strong identity. It's a very strong sort of uh, Americans would think of like the music scene or mm. would think of the British, you know, kind of invasion. But what what is Liverpool like hardcore working class town? Uh, how would you describe Liverpudlians? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I always have it's It's interesting to be almost closely related but once removed from such a strong identity right. uh, lots of my cousins are just well so first thing that kind of the tribalism that's there um my my cousins are from on the Wirral you say on the Wirral because it's on the, the peninsula Wirral. okay and they um people from over the Mersey in Liverpool would call them wolves uh, as in uh, wool on a sheep I don't know why apparently something about Maybe something to do with imposter or something I don't know. insulting about yeah something about being weak maybe yeah. I don't know <laughs> probably um, but that but there anyone else from anywhere around the country would be like oh they're a scouser a, a Liverpudlian yeah um, so even within Liverpool there's these strange uh, kind of regions and identities that people have scouser uh, word of pejorative negative or pride strength. But, or both? Uh, both. Both. Okay. Depends who's saying it. Uh, <laughs> depends who's saying it. There was, a, there was a famous comedy show called Harry and Paul back in the 80s, and um, they had these two uh, scousers. And, or maybe it wasn't Harry and Paul. It might have been the fast show. I don't know. But um, they basically had curly hair, track suits, full on, <laughs> and they'd steal stuff from your car kind of thing. Um, but uh, And that was generally the pejorative... Yeah. Uh, view of Liverpool, especially through the 80s. Um, I have a good friend of mine who's in Liverpool at the minute. His family is also from North Liverpool area, and he describes it like a country within a country. Mm. You know, kind of Vatican vibes. If the Vatican, instead of a Pope, had a... <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, thieves and tracks. Thieves and tracks. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not all. No. Uh, so, and and it is very much that it's everyone, the people, so kind, so loving, um, so kind of weighty and textured as a people yeah. in terms of just, uh, yeah, you're just always having a great time, always having a laugh, but all you know, willing to be serious and down to earth as well. Um, yeah, and so. I Did think you, for, were you born there? You you were not. Was I would, so I spent the first removed? two or three years of my life in Liverpool uh, okay. on the on the Wirral. Okay. But I was born in Chester, which is a town just outside of Merseyside, right on the border with Wales. Um, apparently, people always say, people say this about a bunch of different towns and cities in England. It's like, oh, they still have a law, <laughs> uh, and the still have a law thing for Chester is that if a Welshman is still in the grounds at like 11, then, you know, I don't know, they're going to be put in prison or something like that. Um, but yeah, it's a short hop and a skip from Chester to my other set of grandparents in North Wales in a place called Hollywell, okay. um, literally Hollywell, because yeah. I forget which saint, but she had a head chopped off on top of a hill. Oh. It rolls down the hill, it lands in a spring. Is that the appears. one that is uh, depicted in part in the Sir Gawain, the movie? Did you see the movie version? Of I haven't seen Gawain? the movie yet. There's a headless saint, and I feel like he's in like the Welsh sort of borderland area. I wonder if there's a... Well, that would make sense because uh, the Gawain poet literally references the wilderness of the Wirral. Yeah, that's right. And that's on the Wirral. Uh, that's um, cool. And then he goes past, on his journey, he goes from wherever Camelot is, yeah. it seems to be somewhere in South Wales, or yeah, around there. He goes up and he goes past Hollyhead, which is kind of the island... Um, 
just north of Wales, off that coast, and then he goes all along that coast. So he would have ridden past Hollywell and, and the kind of the place where that. I bet that's the reference. Probably, it's been a I imagine. Since I've seen it, but um, okay. So you grow up, but you don't largely grow up there. You're born there just for a few years in that area, yeah. and then you largely grew up in Huddersfield, or is that late? Much later. Um. So still, we're we're. Yeah, we're in the north, though, right? It's all in the northwest. Yeah. Uh, yeah, my accent is one that is, it's never quite as strong as the people around me. When I went down south, people described me as the northerner. However, in the north, I was always, I had a soft accent, if you will, rather mm. than a hard accent, because I went from born in Chester, lived in Liverpool, about the age of three. My dad, who's a doctor, moved for work to Leeds, which is, again... Uh, the northwest area it's about an hour and a half from Liverpool driving and I was there until the age of around 10 at which point my family moved again for work to Huddersfield and Leeds and Huddersfield are both in Yorkshire um, but the pla- the part of Leeds that I was in was probably um, yeah it had it, it people didn't have as hard an accent it wasn't as distinctively mm-hmm. passionately Yorkshire Huddersfield definitely is it's it's kind of one of those places with a chip on its shoulder because it gets voted worst town in England every other year. It's one of those places, um, uh, but I love it dearly, and you know it's it's a it was a wonderful place to grow up. Um, but yeah, so I ended up in Huddersfield eventually, uh, about at the age of ten, after a short stint in Leeds. Where, and when when people maybe who've only visited London think of you know uh, England, and they're thinking of London or Londoners or the vibe. Uh, how is Yorkshire different? What is the flavor of like the the northern man? Uh, stereotypes are people will actually talk to you when when you're up north, <laughs> rather than uh, get out my way. Yeah, stand to the left on the London's escalator. London's got the New York vibe, the busy. Very We're all much trying so. to yeah get yeah. somewhere else. Go out. Yeah, you walk along. Um, the stereotype is southerners go up north and they're walking in the beautiful countryside and they walk past someone and they say. Um, oh, good morning. How you doing? And they're like, oh, why are you talking to me? That's strange. <laughs> Can't I just surprised? Yeah, surprised a little bit. Um, so there is that uh, there is that feeling a bit. Um, again, it's very regional that northwest area. The weird thing about the UK being you have all these different accents and identities so smashed close together. Um, it's like. People describe Liverpool kind of like a Boston often, mm-hmm. and it sometimes feels like having a bunch of Boston's, if they all had different identities, one next to each other, like all these very um, idiosyncratic places that have their own strong accents, cultures, football teams. Mm -hmm. Um, Other things about the North is, uh, politically speaking, uh, left-leaning labor unions, uh, the big, another big stereotype would be uh, down with Thatcher type stuff Mm. um, because the narrative is, is, uh, the narrative that's peddled is is one of uh, the coal mines being that central battleground between the working class and a Tory government that didn't care. So you will meet lots of people with that kind of attitude towards the government, although uh, that has been complicated recently with Brexit. Uh, the red wall fell, they said. There's a big band of people. Oh, red is the opposite. So red is left. Red is left. Yeah. Which makes more sense, by the way. You guys messed it up. I don't know what's going on there. (laughs) (laughs) It makes a lot more sense. Um, But yeah, so red red is left and always this wall in the north. 
Um, and then the big political changes recently if Scotland have gone and voted for Scottish Nationalist Party, which is left-leaning pro-independence for Scotland. And then the North, because of Brexit predominantly, um, ended up voting for the man himself, Boris Johnson, Conservative. in the Conservative. Yeah. And it was uh, the biggest upset since for the Conservative Party since Thatcher. Wow. It's the biggest win. Generations. Yeah. Um, so coming up in that area, I mean, Lisa and I have the idyllic sort of James Harriet, Yorkshire Dales, mm. like almost regularly on in the house, just like the audio of, of, of this, these stories. Um, very idyllic, very sort of beautiful, these small, very sort of um, socially connected, but very quirky little towns. Not different really from what you're describing, but as far as sort of the economics of the time, things like that, are these areas that are devastated sort of like the rust belt of america that used to be places of great industry and are now sort of almost shelled kind of areas where people have have had to leave in order to find work or is there a different narrative there about i'm thinking of just like these strong industrial places working class labor union kind of places but as far as now is that is there still thriving economies in those places or is it is it a little bit more like that rust belt sort of american picture uh, it's very much lean towards the Rust Belt pitch, I think. In the Huddersfield, uh, the town where I grew up, Halifax, the town next to it, which uh, that's where I went to school. I used to get the bus between the two. Is used to be, in the 19th century, Industrial Revolution, in, in, incredibly affluent. And much of the architecture um, is very much of that era still. And then you have since then the gutting out of these industrial centers it moved elsewhere manchester liverpool thriving huddersfield halifax not so smaller towns they never really grew beyond um that point uh yeah and so you do that that is part of um that's kind of why huddersfield keeps getting voted whatever worst town and things <laughs> there's this feeling that Nothing's going on. It's and nothing will. You wouldn't go intentionally on there. move there. No, you <laughs> for, would. You wouldn't. For uh, a job definitely or, not. Yeah. It would be one of the most. If if an American came to me and went, oh, I, I visited Huddersfield, it would be incredibly shocking to me. Yeah, I, I don't even know what the American equivalent would be to like if I said, oh, I went and visited this place, Bakersfield, M maybe, and I did. So, yeah. <laughs> and, um, in fact, so um, a, a really uh, dear friend of mine, I'd. Um, a guy, a big part of how I ended up over in the States, uh, uh, it's called Lucas, and he is from Bakersfield. And when I first came to visit California, I came over and I went to visit his family. And I, I was loving it because everything was new and strange to yeah, me, the yeah. oil things going up and down <laughs> in the desert. And he's like, what is like this place? Is, there's nothing here. Yeah. And he was preparing me. He's like, people say about Bakersfield. <laughs> and I was, I, I enjoyed it. It was for me, Americana, whether yeah. or not it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Wait, sorry. Bakersfield, incorrect. Cut it from the record. Lucas Barstow. would be incredibly sad. No, um, no. <laughs> his, oh, no way. His parents now live in Visalia. Porterville. Porterville. Oh, wow, that's a deeper cut. It's a deeper cut, but Bakersfield vibes, I think. Vibes. But um, but they would hate me for saying that. Everything I've said is going to get me in trouble. <laughs> Forgive me, everybody uh, who lives in Porterville and now Visalia. Uh, I got it all wrong. Um, but it's a similar kind of vibe, even smaller town. Porterville yeah. ran out of water during the drought. <laughs> yeah. It's this kind of a place. Um, 
But talking to him, he did a, I guess, a similar move southward like I did eventually in the UK. And I think he describes it similarly in terms of people discount it. It's middle of nowhere. Yeah. There's there's deep feelings of pride in, in where you're from in a way, almost despite adversity. Uh, but also when people move away, there's a feeling like, oh, I've got out. Got out betrayed maybe yeah bits of that but also yeah it's mixed so you're there because your father is a doctor what's it like growing up with a father as a doctor like what kind of like a general practitioner like goes to people's houses has his own little shop in the center of town what does it mean yeah he he is a consultant doctor so in the uk that means you can sign off stuff it's you the the head honcho now or whatever um and I always find this weird. You go from mister to doctor when you pass your undergraduate degree. And then when you become a consultant, you become mister again. Ooh. So if you see a mister in a hospital, then they're elite. They're, yeah. <laughs> I don't, they just did it to keep people on their toes. I don't know. Or they can go undercover with a credit card or whatever. But it is. does having a doctor as a dad mean you're like, you're just always really healthy or you're always just very paranoid about not how, how healthy you aren't? Yeah. I mean, my family. On my dad's side, especially, I feel like are hypochondriacs. <laughs> and I've probably picked up a bit of that. Uh, because when you've got a doctor there, it's the most comforting thing in the world to go to your dad and be like, I was breathing the other day and I was pretty sure I, I was breathing like a little bit slower than I should be. Strange. And I read on Google and that means I've been bitten by a spider that only exists in Australia. So you need to now. And he would be like, stop being an idiot. Or you'd be like, oh, I feel ill. I've got a stomach ache and he'd go, come here. And he'd like prod you somewhere and you go, yeah. did that hurt? And you'd be like, mm, yes. And you go, you're fine. Go to school. You're like, oh, 50-50. I'll try again next time. Um, so it was, it was comforting to have that person to go to, to allay your hypochondria. Mm. But then, um, well, what am I on about? I still do it now. I still very much call him up and be like, is give this me a an recent, issue? Give me a recent example of you getting a little oh. too far into the weeds. Of- <laughs> what is a recent example? Let me think. I think because I mean, this is this is still COVID era. I mean, like, how, is, how are yeah. you doing? <laughs> yeah, COVID. Well, COVID was never. I had the awful. The way I dealt with COVID was, um, I'll live forever. <laughs> I'm twenty something. Ah, you know <laughs> that kind of thing, which is awful. I'm not saying it was good, but that's how I dealt with it. And so I, I kind of second guess the hypochondria with um, that other great strain of character I have, which is uh, awful abandon uh, uh, points. So um, that's how I dealt with that one. But I, I think, yeah, in terms of, when was the last thing that I, hmm, it was probably, it's probably like some kind of, oh, I ate a cheese sandwich from, I'm not gonna say the establishment. Don't say the place, because we love that place. I love the place, it's a place. It's near 7-Eleven. In fact, let's call but, it 7-Eleven because okay. I don't care if that goes okay, down. Okay, fair enough. So yeah. at 7-Eleven, you order a cheese sandwich. Now, yeah. people here would never even order a cheese sandwich. So yeah. you order a cheese sandwich, which yeah. is literally just slices of cheese with bread. Cheese and bread, butter. And butter. <laughs> okay, so this is like the most British thing ever. And how yeah. many slices of cheese was on that cheese sandwich? Well, the lady, bless her, went insane and gave me like... More than I would have asked Wasn't it like seven? It was like seven. Chunky slices. It was basically a block of cheese between bread. And butter. Yeah, but here's the thing that got me right. And this is is the medical expertise of uh, Mr. (laughs) Brian Dobbins coming into play. She had, do you want some salad? And I felt the pressure because I knew the look I would get with lettuce. Yeah. Yeah. I knew the look I'd get if I said no lettuce. And she'd be like, you want 
cheese and bread. And so I said, yeah, give me a bit of red onion. You were trying to assimilate to the culture in a moment. Biggest mistake of my life. And so you got some salmonella. Yeah, and my dad was like, it was definitely the salad because the water sits on the salad and gets some bad, like it becomes cursed water and then you just take it in. And uh, it's not details that the podcast needs. Okay. But all you need to know is I was humbled. You were? (laughs) Yeah. In (laughs) every way. And I was on the phone. I was like, is this? And he's like, you've been food poisoned. You'll be okay. It's just food poisoning. Yeah. That was a bad time. But that was probably the last time I, you know, uh, asked for succor from from the fount of knowledge that is. From the doctor. From the mister. From the mister. Um, Okay. So you grow up in the north. And are you always planning on like, all right, to, to become a human, like in the world, I need to get out of here. Are you, is that in your mind growing up or are you like, I love this place, but colleges, university is, is elsewhere. So I'm eventually going to obviously move or is it difficult to leave when you leave? Hmm. I think, I think my siblings, I'm the eldest of four. I think my siblings feel differently. My brother definitely wanted to leave, but he feels a large parts of his identity are in the north. I feel that as well. It's strange me and my brother talk about this because like I said, moving around and not having that rootedness in a specific place. If I would have been born and grown up in Huddersfield, I would find it a lot easier to feel like I'm from Huddersfield. However, because I moved around the northwest, I feel like I'm northern, but what that means in terms of location is strange. And so leaving Huddersfield was, yes, like, I was sad to leave. I love the place. Um, Many fond memories. I always love returning. But also I moved, the first move I made was back to Liverpool for university. So I remained within that nest of the Northwest. And so I never, it didn't feel like some great schism of identity or some great re-maneuvering of where I was necessarily because of that. Where in, or is your family a, a church going family growing up? Is it, a, is it Catholic uh, uh, from the older roots or something else? No, not Catholic. So, I mean, the story of my family is um, rather miraculous in a way. Both my mum's side and my dad's side were bumped into each other somehow in the Northwest, often before my mum and dad got married. They mm. kind of knew each other in little pockets. But they did they did not grow up Christian. So this is my grandparents' generation. On my dad's side of the family, uh, it was my uncle Steve who first um, became a Christian. I believe he saw a film about Christ. I don't know what it was and wanted to know more about who is this person. He was just so appealing to him. And he began going to church, reading the Bible. Um, I don't know the ins and outs, but it was from Steve on that side of the family that my grandmother, my nan, um, Carol, she became a Christian and then slowly over time, the family, uh, came to faith through that one person. Similar on the other side, my great grandma, Mariam, she's no longer with us, but she, she lived this life. She had, uh, had a husband, had kids. And I believe the husband passed away and she began going to church. She was like, not, she was your working class scouse. Uh, lived in a council house, fierce, beautiful lady. And she was, I imagine, I don't know, I never particularly asked her, but I imagine she'd be like, nonsense, I've got no time for that. She goes and she becomes a Christian and the kids are like, I don't want anything to do with this. And by this point, um, 
my nan had kids. So I believe my, I think that's right. Or my nan was definitely married. So she, so this is like, my grandmother is already, I believe in her thirties when my great grandmother comes to faith and she's terrified of water and she gets baptized and the, in the church where she goes, it's full dunk, Ooh, one option, merch. one option. And yeah. so uh, she tells her daughters and they go because they didn't believe that she was gonna go underwater. They were like, she will never do this. But I know, they were like, I know my mother and she's terrified of water. She won't go under the water. If she does, they wanted to I'll kind of go and laugh a little bit, I guess, <laughs> and like see this ordeal happen. And they went and at the baptism, they, you know, something began to stir and move and eventually they became Christians. Wow. And that was the great movement from that. Um, my mum became a Christian um, in her late teens uh, because of that movement as well. And so you have these two different sides. Wow. Um, there's even like crossover. There's a story of um, my nan on my dad's side she knew Ian, who is my, <laughs> it's like, I need a family tree. It's like the Plantagenets or something. <laughs> here. I don't know what's going on. Um, uh, and all you need to know is Ian is on my mother's side of the family. It's weird that they met, they, that they met. And the story goes that Ian was getting in a car and he was like thinking about Christianity, like should I? And he, they'd been talking about it. They'd gathered under the house and he gets in the car. My nan, this just like wanders over to the car with him and gets in the car and he gives him a big kiss on probably on the lips. No, my nan, uh, <laughs> I imagine. And she just says to him, she says, um, when you're driving home tonight, think about where you'd go if the car goes off the side of the road <laughs> and, sh and shuts the door, and which is insane. That is not, I mean, I'm not condoning. A classic evangelist. Yeah, classic. I'm not condoning message. that at all. That's my nan being insane. Um, but, but, I mean, it did work. It, so. <laughs> it literally, that was like, it, whatever it was, she decided that he needed a slap across the that face in a way that only she could provide, uh, <laughs> which was which was mad. So indeed, yeah, that was. Um, anyway, all that to say, these two halves of my family, like I've, ever since I began to hear more about that, I was always very aware of the way that God works in just mysterious ways and through families. Because yeah. for a long time, the fact that I'd grown up in a Christian home was like a mark against me. Mm. I was like, oh, I'm just believing it because it's comfortable, it's nice, it's just what it always was. How am I ever going to untether feelings of home from feelings of truth? And then hearing more of these stories made me realize that the fact that I'm growing up in a Christian home is a wild grace anyway. It's not a, well, of course you're now a Christian. If you just go back two generations and ask someone, who wasn't yet a Christian, like, do you think your great, great, great grandson would be a Christian? Nah, never in a million years. Mm. And yet here I am because that family went through that transformation, or at least partly so. When you go to university in Liverpool at that point in your life, would you say you had a, a fairly strong sort of independent stand on your own two feet faith uh, heading into university, leaving home, not that far, obviously still in the north, northwest, um, what is that? What are those years like as far as faith and university look? What does that look like? Yeah, so I grew up in the church. Obviously, my parents went to a Baptist church, which um, looked looks very different in the UK from a Baptist church in the states. Um, it probably had more of a feel of a Methodist church here. Mm -hmm. I would say maybe something along those lines. 
but grew up there and had um, great youth pastors and things. And I had a great time there. But from around the age of, I was baptized, I think around 14, 15. I can never remember the exact date. Um, except very soon after that, uh, I kind of detached myself from the faith. Mm. And in terms of why that was, why I got baptized and didn't, I think part of it was uh, wanting to, wanting to keep going with the Christian side of things, not, not feeling, it wasn't a feeling like this is all madness and insanity, I don't believe it. It was more like, I just don't believe it. Mm. <laughs> if, if you can see the difference there. And then I, um, yeah, get baptized maybe because I was in that youth group and there was a big push, like you should get baptized. And people were getting baptized. I thought I can get baptized. And I'd had a few moments where, you know, maybe I had an emotional moment with a worship song or mm. maybe I had a, a moment where I prayed and I felt something. I was always looking for feelings, always looking for some kind of uh, charismatic-esque thing to happen to me throughout my teenage and early 20s. That was the thing I was looking for to validate something, mm -hmm. uh, to get out of this closed system of your family's Christian, you're Christian, you need something from the outside coming in. And that's what I felt like it would be like. Um, but I, I remember straight after the baptism, my mom got me a picture of me being baptized um, I remember, I don't remember the emotions behind this, but it was like, she so said it on my, it's like a really nice thing to do. She said it on my bedside table. I remember just, I got, I, like, I took it out the frame and I just like scrunched it up and like put it somewhere, mm. you know? And I think that was just a shame I felt about it. You know, I always think of Paul, what's he say? Don't be ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I was very much shame, uh, shameful of the gospel. Did you think it wasn't? true that it was a, an authentic moment or that or you were just embarrassed i think it was embarrassment it was that homo duplex thing like living two lives at once i had a life with friends that was very much trying to you know be as affable as i could and whatever and, and be liked that mm. was a whole big basically most of my high school years um but then I had this whole other life, which was pleasing parents, pleasing family, pleasing church, um, and also pleasing that side of my soul that still didn't quite not believe it fully. And I think a full detachment would have uh, felt painful to that little bit of me. And so to avoid that little bit of pain, I did it, but then felt the shame of it afterwards. So at university then you're not thinking of yourself as a Christian? Or? No, not when, I, not when I went. Although yeah. this is the weird thing, like looking looking back on that time in my life, it's just like some kind of strange wraith just <laughs> floating around. Like yeah. I feel so much more a human being nowadays. It's a weird thing to say, mm. but I do. And back then, I'm not even sure why I made decisions or how I made them, which I think is indicative of the kind of headspace, soul space that I was in um, in those years. But yeah, I, I never once did I declare, uh, or what is it? to the lighthouse, there is no God, stand up on the boat. I never had that moment. I just kind of didn't. Um, and so I go to university, uh, I guess context for university, drinking age 18 in the, in the UK. And so university is a bit of a wild time, as you can imagine. Just imagine the carnage of 18 year olds being able to drink here. I, I think it's an insane, it would be weird. So, um, 
that whole thing and just live a very not outrageous by worldly standards at all but very secular worldly first semester over at the university of liverpool Carnatic halls looks like a prison in fact the man the equivalent in manchester was designed by the same person who designed the um the female jails in Scandinavia, I believe. And so that's the kind of, imagine jail-esque, brutalist. Um, there was no common area in the uh, in Carnatic Halls. Wow. And so when we hung out, we used to grab our beers and line a corridor. And so there would be like 30 people in a line against the wall of the corridor, like trying to have a social time together. <laughs> um yeah, we'd go, like, right near there is the whole um, uh, Conatic Halls, kind of, there's, like, a little pub on the area. All the food was done for you. It was, like, a canteen, so it was, but it was pretty stodgy, crappy, awful stuff at the canteen. It was you, your classic first-year British university experience, just might as well be living outside kind but of thing. you're there studying literature english literature yeah so from that moment that that kind of youngish age were you like i'm gonna be a teacher i'm gonna be what, what were you like i'm gonna be a writer why were you studying literature what was the did that have a, a central place in your sort of interest focus passion or was it just like that was something to do next i think it was something to do next at high school I was successful and I was, uh, to use a, a phrase my friend is fond of using, but it's true, affirmation junkie. Um, so just any time that someone was like, you're pretty good at that. I was like, oh, that feeds my ego in the most pleasant of ways. Um, <laughs> more of that, please. And so people said I was good. I could write an essay at high school level, whatever that means. I can't, I've never gone back and read them and neither do I have a desire to. <laughs> But enjoyed it, never really read the books, but read them in a way that I could um, spout out a decent essay, I suppose. I loved, um, loved English, there was English literature, English language, really loved history of the, history of the English language, um, lots of uh, uh, child language acquisition stuff, like that side of it, as well as the artistic side, um, poetry especially I liked, probably because it was short form, so I could get away with it a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Um, and so all of that, and then I guess off the back of that, had this blown up sense of my own capacity for, um, being some kind of English literature, whoever. So I applied to a bunch of, uh, universities for English literature, got into none of them other than Liverpool. Um, this is not an excuse, but it's a good story. Um, I had to write a personal statement, which must've been, I guess, common app is probably the similar thing. And I start with the word Hemingway and I spell him with two M's. <laughs> and I'm in this mock uh, interview meeting with this guy, and I've already sent it all off. And he goes, yeah, okay, this looks like a pretty decent thing. You'll have a good shot. Oh, by the way, before you send this off, make sure you spell Hemingway correctly. That would be awful. And I, and I was like, what do you mean? He's like, there's one M. I was like, but I-N-G. <laughs> and no, yeah, so uh, not an excuse, though. I think I just didn't get in for many other reasons as well. Um, but Liverpool was the one place, and, uh, you know, uh, thank God that um, I was I was let in. Obviously, the person who read my personal statement either saw it and didn't care or didn't see it. <laughs> but you don't, it's not like you muddle along. I mean, somehow you end up at, at Oxford doing a, a master's in literature. So... So did you then get serious at a certain point or did you did you go sort of all in by the end of that degree? Yeah, so 
get to Liverpool and really begin to enjoy the academic side of things, find literature in general, fond de siècle, end of 19th, early 20th century literature, especially fascinating. Um, and begin to get stuck in, read the stuff, really think about the stuff. And found that found a few academics who thought that I could do stuff, believed in me a little bit, and uh, really liked the stuff I was writing and thinking. And that, again, kind of buoyed me up to think, oh, maybe I can do this thing. And um, yeah, I, I just, I just, I guess it just kept building pressure. Um, also, uh, my best mate from back in the UK, he also was going through a similar journey. And so we would we would just go on long walks and talk pretentious things about, you know, anything from Ezra Pound to whoever you want. So it was all, it was, it was that kind of, you know, autumnal nights walking around being like, yeah, what, what is Wallace Stevens doing here? Um, whilst, uh, people, if people could only, if we were amplified, I'm sure people would have flocked from the streets to beat us to a pulp. Um, but we weren't, we were, uh, we were in our sordid little corner of Liverpool and no one could touch us. And, uh, we were putting the, uh, literary canon to rights, uh, but it was it was it was great fun, and I think you got to go through that. It's a great season, you got to go through that season. Yeah. You got to you've got to believe that you're saying important things to maybe one day go on and understand other people's important things. When do you feel the call to be a teacher? Because you're one of the, I mean the the high school realm is still newish to me. It's not really new, but newish. Um, <laughs> and there are people you meet who are there and not sure how they got there and there are people you meet who are there and you can tell like they're on their way to something else as well. Um, and then there are people you meet who are, this is what I mean to do. And you've said as much in, in a talks you've given or just conversations that you want to be a teacher till, till the end of your days, till, till you're retired, till whatever, mm -hmm. like there isn't something behind that. There's just, that's what you want. When did you feel like the call to be a teacher? When did you feel like that was the thing that, you were going to be up to? I think like with many things in my life so far, it's difficult to place a moment of realization, partly because I felt, I feel like I was so, um, not in a social sense, but I was very unself-aware as a person for a long time in terms of a, not spiritual either, just in terms of what I was about, what I was getting on with, what I was doing. But I think the switch happened, well, I worked, I taught, I tutored whilst I was in undergraduate years. And then I got a job at this place. It was an alternative provision facility, which means it was kids who'd been kicked out of high schools in the inner city Liverpool area. And we would do what I can only describe as glorified babysitting. Um, they would just run away on regular <laughs> occasions. And our job was to call the police and the police would bring them back. Um, I remember overseeing a design technology project where a, a kid made his own vape pen. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I definitely, I don't know. <laughs> it was pretty cool. He smoked out the whole place with <laughs> the smell of cherry. So he was there being like, you wait, you watch out. I was like, that's gotta be bad for you, but you'll be, I guess, at least you're doing something constructive. Um, and at the same time, I was teaching at a performing arts school, the other side of Liverpool in the afternoons. Uh, I was teaching maths at the time rather than English. And um, I say all this to say that put me off teaching. Um, <laughs> it was just uh, just so many wild stories I could go into. Um, Give me one. 
Oh, <laughs> uh, I, do, I don't even... What were my one... <laughs> my one wild... Okay, here's a good wild story. Um, there was this kid I used to tutor. He was kind of kicked out of school. He seemed like a clever kid. He was trying to sell bracelets a lot. That's what I remember. He'd He'd gone... He was like this kind of kid who... You know, the business savvy kid, the kid who buys chocolate bars and sells them for twice as much at school to um, people who want chocolate bars. Uh, and then, you know, goes on and you're like, how do you get a hundred quid? He's like, I just sold the chocolate bars long enough. Uh, so he was that kind of guy. But he um, he was buying like string. Well, this is, I, okay, right. This is what a bracelet is. Uh, if people are wondering, it's string with things threaded onto the string. Right. And so what he'd done is bought certain kinds of string certain kinds of string and certain kinds of things to thread on them and he'd selling them for insane markups <laughs> unsuccessfully mostly <laughs> anyway but that was him what happened is that um uh, my boss at the time saw like i think she was trying to do a nice thing she's like he's business savvy i'm business savvy maybe we can like kindle this and there was a <laughs> there was a cupboard <laughs> up on the top floor of the school we used to teach. I mean cupboard. Like if I'm stood in it, there's like three other people that can fit in that thing. Um, kids would go in there to like hide and, and whatever. And then we'd find them like, oh, they're in the cupboard uh, again. And she cleared out the cupboard and somehow it was like the TARDIS. She put a desk in there and she hung up some, like it might've been her degree on the wall. I don't even know. And she plopped him in there and she gave him clothes to sell for like profit. I don't know. It was, it was literally insane. And so you'd go up and he would be in the closet <laughs> um, drastically trying to make a markup on somebody's like jeans. I don't even know. Um, and so that was the kind of thing that happened there. It had no rhyme or reason. It was insane. I never, t I never got past unit two of any, well, in that school, I never got past <laughs> unit two of maths. Like um, if anybody mathematical is, is listening, they could add fractions. That's about it. And that's about that's it. About it. Um, so it was supposed yeah. to be like a GED where they were like, they were like making up the high school education thing that they had been kicked out of? Yeah, basically you're, you're legally obliged to be there right. until 18. And so they were just waiting. Cause, and they had, these kids had very, not all of them, but lots of them had very tragic, difficult lives. And so really it was just, let's get you to 18, at which point you don't have to be here anymore. Um, let's try and um, in school playing up. You can just imagine. Um, over at the performing arts school, it was more, they were trying to get GCSEs, uh, which I did not help them do. Which is what? Um, so, uh, you take a big centralized set of exams uh, when you're 16 and when you're 18 in the UK, 16 is called GCSEs. You take about 13 exams. Everyone in the country takes the same exam. English, maths, science, geography, history, et cetera, et cetera. And then you pick four subjects for your A-levels and you kind of hone in and specialize for what would be your junior, senior year of high school. Mm. So I picked English literature, English language, music, and mathematics for mm. A-level. Mm. Um, but all of that was mad. I, it made me feel awful at many points because I just hated the feeling of just the madness of it. I didn't like it. Um, uh, and then, but 
it was all just money was coming in. I was living with my mate, Andy, and we applied for Oxford in the first part of that time, that year. And that's all we applied for. We said, we'll just kind of fling it off and see see how it goes. Uh, and we both got in. He got in to do 18th century literature. I was 1900 to present day. Nice. Um, and yeah, I think a big part of that was uh, some of the academics that uh, I'd impressed and I'd become uh, kind of friendly with were kind of people down there as well. Mm. And so people must talk, I assume. Um, and so my dissertation tutor was... Uh, uh, a woman called Alexandra Harris, who's a wonderful, wonderful academic. She's great. She's written a few books. Um, would read one, Romantic Moderns, about uh, kind of about the, I guess more, hmm, I guess the romantic tendencies of the moderns. There you go. <laughs> That's about as much <laughs> as I'm going to give you. Uh, she wrote one called Weatherlands, all about weather in throughout literature mm. uh, in British literature. So she's that kind of academic. Anyway, so we end up going down there. But in answer to your question, how do I end up? wanting to become a teacher well it wasn't that time that time made me realize that there's certain things I really didn't want to do um however after my master's I end up going into marketing I was a communications manager at an architects firm called LAPD Architects cool. strangely um I believe it's because it was their names like uh, Lidar Avery property <laughs> development or something like that um we used to meet on a on a nuclear fusion site Ooh. Um, I was told by a friend of mine who worked there, it's the hottest place in the universe. Wow. Um, and so, <laughs> so they're trying to, they're, you know, everyone's hustle and bustle, driverless cars, um, uh, engines, uh, like super flipping jet engine mm -hmm. crap, stuff like that. People trying to make fusion happen. Uh, and then me doing Facebook posts about your extension. Um, uh, it also, it used to be a World War II uh airbase and so world war ii airbases are set out in a triangular pattern because i believe it helped them take off in all sorts of directions mm. i don't know how it works so it was this weird layering of world war ii airbase south oh, i guess like oxfordshire countryside world war ii airbase nuclear fusion um me <laughs> <laughs> and you were like i want to do anything else yeah eventually yeah. um there's something to be said conrad always talks about this that work the rhythm of work stops you from sinking into some strange existential mess and mm. i think there's a truth to that there's a truth to getting up out of bed even if you don't really love what you're doing and just going to work and doing the thing. Um, for me, when I started working there, before I came to know Christ, it was probably a big thing that kept me grounded. Um, and yeah, there's there's definitely, I found there to be a truth in that. Uh, also, um, yeah, th throughout that time, I love, I love the small talk, I love the office goss, you know, I'm all about, let's make the 10th cup of tea and talk about <laughs> nonsense. Um, <laughs> Still have many great friends who actually I should, maybe I'll message a few today and see how they're doing. Um, but yeah, many great friends from over there. Had a great time. Uh, my bosses liked me. They thought I was doing a good job for most of it. Um, I think at the end I, I fell off a little bit um, and they were they were gracious enough and also uh, probably rightfully impatient with me, uh, especially over the COVID years. There was... There were some days where I did not fill my quota. Uh, <laughs> I can say that again. Um, but yeah, a point where I was like, I can't go on and do this. I did a marketing qualification and I did all this stuff, but I was like, I'm, 
it just felt like I was writing copyright and becoming just a strange robot in the process. Um, I, I believe some people can have wonderfully fulfilling careers in that stuff. For me, it just wasn't quite uh, what excited me, I guess, in the end. Do you, did, is your experience of Oxford what people imagine an experience of Oxford was? I mean, it is, mm. it's beautiful. It's, it is, it's ancient, certainly. In our, in our terms over here, it's, it's one of those, it's almost like a, a fantasy world. Um, just the, the look, the layout, the, the feel of just walking around, uh, mm-hmm. in that place, um, was your experience, not to say idyllic, but what is your, was your experience incredibly rich? Was it something where you're like, uh, or, or really did it bring you into a place there that was unique in your, in your experience to that point? Yeah, it definitely did. I think to answer the first question about the idols of Oxford, the dreaming spires, all that kind of stuff. Um, Yes, there's that feel to the place for sure. Um, I, It's funny, it's like another part of my life where I feel like I was in a place and also not quite had the full identity because the same as being in Huddersfield but not born in Huddersfield, just northwest, come to Watson for my master's, which, you know, is still... Uh, it's still Oxford. It's still like it's legitimately a master's. However, there's people been there for the undergraduate, which I think really, uh, if you want to get all weird about it, uh, that's where you get all weird about it for yeah. sure. Um, but you still you go to the dinners, you wear the gowns, you walk, you sit in a library, and you can go work in the room that's from like, you know, Henry the Fifth's time or whatever it is, and there's books on the wall that are from the 16th century, and you're just writing your awful little things about um, Ford Maddox Ford. Uh, so you can you can do all that kind of stuff. It's beautiful. It's magical. It's strange. Um, the One of the first people I, I met there um, was an academic who <laughs> was like hilariously disparaging. I, I kind of liked him. I won't give his name, but he, um, <laughs> he like, he always kind of had alcohol in his breath, always like drinking, but would always be like, he'd sit down and be like, what are you doing? Like 20th century literature. He'd be like, that's hilarious <laughs> that they now let you do that. You know, I, I, he was doing like old French. He knew Greek. Like he knew the yeah, whole deal. Yeah, he was the full deal. He was the real thing. And he came in and I went, what's, who's your guy then? I was like, Ford Maddox Ford is probably who I'll write. He went, oh yeah. I, uh, you read the good soldier. Like, yeah. He went, oh yeah. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a poem in ancient Greek about uh, the good soldier last night. Uh, and it kind of like, I'd show it you, but you wouldn't understand it because you only know English, you cretin. Um, and so it was, it was very much like that. But then he, yeah, while I got invited, we kind of became friends weirdly. It became obvious that maybe he was up to some stuff that I wouldn't want to be up to. We like... He invited me to see the magic flute one time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, there's those. Anyway, uh, <laughs> oh, at some point, I remember just having a man. There's a yeah. There's some weird moments. Anyway, there was a time where I thought I've got to, I've got to not <laughs> hang around this guy for a bit. And he always, we always used to sit in the same bit of the library. Um, and I just didn't go to the library and I felt really bad because I because he felt lonely to me. I think I was drawn to him because like anyone who takes the piss out of me, firstly, I'm like, okay, I'm not, I'm not easily offended necessarily by that kind of stuff. But also I'm like, this is kind of fun. I, I quite enjoy um, like 
someone having a dig, I'm like, okay, we can probably, it kind of cuts a lot of the surface level stuff. You get somewhere deeper quicker. I'm not the kind of person to do that. I will not like <laughs> insult you on the first meeting. I'll insult you on like the 500th meeting. And even then you'll be like, was that aimed at me? I don't know. Um, whereas uh, he was a straight to the point. I was like, I love that he's just calling, he's calling my bull. He's just mm. like, your modern literature <laughs> degree means very little to me. And I kind of love that. Um, but then I felt his loneliness after that. And, and, but th so I felt very guilty about avoiding him, but I would, and he would be perched. I could see him from the window. The qu they have quads in. So I was at the, I was at Wilson college, which was a brutalist modern college, still Aww. very beautiful, but not, not the idyllic not, Oxford you imagine. We uh, again, <laughs> classic me. Uh, I didn't look at the colleges. I just, uh, someone said, Wycliffe's only for postgrads, so that's cool. So I went, whatever. And then I got there, I was like, disappointed. <laughs> I was like, where's my, where's my old wooden staircase where's in my room that's too cold? Yeah. I'm, I'm en ensconced in concrete. Like, what's happening? Uh, but uh, it's still, it's very beautiful. It's right on the Thames. It goes, it's very northerly. So it's quite nice to be, it's north of the city. It's not in amongst all the other colleges. Oh, okay. um, but yeah, I would walk on the quad, which is like a central green space and all the buildings around it. I'd see his face and I'd just kind of, you know, quickly get back to my room because I felt like something bad might happen if we continue to uh, <laughs> hang out. Um, uh, but yeah, so... Definitely Oxfordy weirdness, all that kind of stuff is there. It's part of it. However, at the same time, um, uh, great. I had a great group of friends in my cohort. Mm. Uh, we became, we stayed friends uh, afterwards, and really down to earth, normal people from America, England, lots of Oxford, Cambridge, but some people like me from Liverpool, a mm -hmm. uh, person from Hull, which is Philip Larkins. Uh, university he used to be there they have kept all his his office after he died they didn't touch anything in his museum now it's kind of weird whatever but you also have discovered i think to me that you were going to church while you were at oxford yeah so is that when something changed yeah so when i in liverpool i began to go into church okay but i was going to church going to this uh young adults group uh all people my own age uh, it's a good church. I have friends still there. Uh, but for me at the time, what happened is that I felt like I'd become a Christian without ever self-consciously thinking through anything. I was just like, well, I'm now, you know, I, I went, I went through some, uh, some like some deep feelings of just like hollowness and, um, sadness around university partly because i was probably ignoring that like five percent of my soul that was still like christ christ mm. christ do it i remember walking along um hope street which is uh, apparently the only street in europe that um has two cathedrals on it and it's at one end the catholic cathedral called lovingly by the locals paddy's wigwam because <laughs> they um they ran out of money and their foundation it was going to be the biggest catholic cathedral or something like that and they ran out of money and they just built this modern thing that looks like a wigwam so it's paddy's wigwam and on the other side is the anglican cathedral this big red brick thing because the original um anglican uh, uh cathedral got bombed in the second world war mm. uh, it's still there people do yoga in it now <laughs> of course as you do um and so 
I remember walking along there, just like, I didn't have very much biblical literacy, weirdly, even though I grew up. So I was just kind of saying John 3.16 to myself, feeling like, I feel a bit mad. I feel like I'm losing <laughs> track of myself a bit, just, oh, John, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so there was that moment, it was, and so church was just like, I can put, I, I diagnose myself as the reason you feel weird and out of place and you're not having that much of a great time sometimes not all the time, sometimes I was just fine, is is because you just need to kind of just admit that you can't like purge yourself of that little bit of your Christian identity. And so just go to church more. So I started going and eventually I would have just called myself Christian. Now, the problem was is that what I'd realized is that my two selves had really just settled and overlapped on one another in the mold, which was my life at that point in Liverpool. And when the mold was taken away, in Oxford, the two selves just separate again really easily. Mm. Uh, and I was down there, uh, just all the things that I wasn't doing in Liverpool that I thought was because I was a moral Christian person turned out just because I was in a specific context. Mm. And when that context left, and for the first time in my life, some temptations that I never had came in my way, I had no, like I was weak. I was like, I wasn't even drinking milk. I was like thinking I was drinking milk and I was mm. actually just thinking, drinking nothing. Mm. And so I just caved and was just full on not a Christian. Um, however, at the same time, uh, my mate who actually came to faith when we were living together, um, he, he was going to church. And so it was lots of careful politics on my part to keep these two lives separate. Um, the life that involved going to church, going to a wonderful Bible study, being surrounded by faithful, wonderful men and women who later became a very influential part of my um, walk with Christ. But um, at the same time, living this other life, which was definitively not Christian. Um, yes. Mm. When did those two selves either have a crisis a break or just one dissolves like how does that how does that become one yeah i think so uh a key part of the story in oxford is that um i meet a girl have the first i'd had relationships before but the first serious relationship in my life and she's not a christian she was a secular jew american in fact from the east coast from Silver Springs, Maryland, I believe. Wow. And so meet her and going through all that first relationship stuff, you know, um, dotage uh, and all, all that goes with it. Uh, blindness, love blindness, whatever it is. But um, so that's a big part because that was my life. And then uh, had, my, had my mate Andy and, and, you know, praise the Lord. I'm every day. I'm thankful uh, that we're such good friends. We met first year at Liverpool um, bonded over a, a book of, um, I was actually breaking up with my girlfriend from high school at the time. And, oh, this is awful. I'm going to say it, but we can maybe take it out. I don't know. This, this is, this is me at my worst. I was texting her quotes from a literary <laughs> quote dictionary, um, for, for sport. Um, so, uh, that's it. I'm saved. Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> my sins are washed away. It's awful. Literally horrible person. If you wanted to know I am, um, so bad. Anyway, that's what we bonded over. Um, yes. I broke up with her eventually. Thank She escaped, uh, 
she's living a much <laughs> better life sweet. now. Um, anyway, but he he like he didn't know the full extent of it, but I was something was happening, and he engineered this Bible study at Wycliffe Hall, which is where he was, uh, mm-hmm. just down the road from Wolfson College, which is where I was. And we would just meet and we'd read the Bible and we'd do the whole Bible study thing. And after, later he told me it was just, he was like, I just felt like you just needed to be reading the Bible, even if it was just that one time a week. And that faithfulness at the time didn't have a massive effect on me, but looking back, it really did. That was mm. so important. Just quiet faithfulness of friends um, was just massive. Um, so that was happening throughout that time. I was going to church, going to this Bible study, and then I was going out with this uh, with this girl who wasn't a Christian, living a non-Christian life. Um, and then what I did is I, master's finished, I became like, I was became nonplussed about master's halfway through, found it difficult to finish, but did. Uh, and then I got this job at the architect's firm and I moved to a studio apartment south of the city, which was in order to keep my life separate better. Looking back, you know, that's not what I would have said, but that's mm-hmm. what it was. Mm-hmm. I wanted to live on my own, have my own space and curate when people saw me and how, which is insane to think about it looking back actually that I went to those lengths and was able to go to those lengths without um, confronting myself on that fact. But that's what I did. So I continued living this double life. I even staged, it was so political to the extent that there was moments where I had to tell it, he knew I was going out with this girl and I had to, he's one of my best mates. So he had to like meet her and so I would like stage meetings and figure out like, okay, like let's do this activity and be like, there's gotta be a time limit. Otherwise he could start asking questions about what's actually going on. Like, what do you believe? Or like, what's going on here? I brought her to church a couple of times. Um, she'd been brought to church before. She, she went to Harvard and she then moved to Oxford for a master's. And at Harvard she'd met, she had a good friend of hers who was a Christian that invited her, but she'd never had great experiences there. Um, she really uh, didn't like Andy. Uh, <laughs> I think partly because she could sense, because she wasn't dumb, that he could sense that everyone knew what was going on. I mean, this is the hilarity of anything like that, is that you think no one knows what's going on. Everyone kind of knows what's going on, but they tread around it in this mm-hmm. delicate way. It's like it's like all my favorite books in the early 20th century. It's parlor room politics. It's like, pass me the tea. By which he means, I've had sex with your wife. You know, <laughs> it's like it's like it's all just painfully yeah, yeah. much. And the same is going on. It's like all these little social moments, which are just so full of, um, I don't know, just so so full of this tension that's there because nobody's saying the thing that everybody knows. Or it's like when you used to do stuff as a kid, and you think my parents never knew, and then your parents are like, oh, of course I knew. Mm. Like, you let me do it. It's like yeah. You gotta, you'll figure out that it was a stupid thing to do. And I was like, well, that's me. That's like all that hiddenness that I thought was hidden wasn't mm. really. So anyway, this was happening. And then it comes to a head because I begin like that 5% of the soul that's just like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. is like, won't shut up still. And I'm like, I've got to sort this out because it began that, that two-person thing, the two selves, really began to stretch. It was like I was walking on um, 
stepping stones and the left and the right leg were getting further and further apart. And I was like, this is actually getting pretty difficult to do now. And it's like actually a little painful. <laughs> and there's going to be a point where I'm just going to fall in the stream if I'm not careful. And so I was like, I've got to, I've got to figure it out. And eventually got to this point where I was like, I've, I've got to break up with her because it's my own soul at stake. And I, and it's not good for her. It's not good for me. Um, and so uh, luckily she was moving back to the States. Her visa ran out. She could stay for a year or so after her master's and then it ran out. And so a couple of years in to that relationship, she goes back to the States and I break up with her. Um, and it was all very difficult, classic, like go to the airport, say goodbye. I was, um, I was about to say, I'm not ashamed to say, I'm a little bit ashamed to say there was a tear, there's a little tear, right? Uh, and I was in the airport <laughs> in Heathrow. I'm leaving. I'm just like, it just was all very intense. So like a, like a little, like maybe moist you eyes. You broke up with her before she got on the plane? Yeah, but okay. I went to put her on the plane. Okay. You know, I like literally at the gates, she's going through the gates. I'm like, there goes that thing. Okay, bam. Yeah. And um, I'm leaving and this kid, she must've been like seven or eight, goes past and she literally goes, Daddy, that boy's crying like they do in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, man, I'd love to trip you up right now, you foolish little child. Um, and I just got back on the got back on the train and went back. I was like, okay. Anyway, I go back to this studio apartment and um I'm just sat there and I'm like, right, I've got to reckon with some stuff now. I don't even know what I've got to reckon with. I've no clue. I've like Cut, cut the parachute cords. And I'm like, right, let's see what happens. <laughs> I guess I'm hoping that um, it's a good ending. And yeah, that was kind of, a, it was a difficult time because I think what the Lord was doing is he, he went, well, this is the way you've been sinning. Like these two selves pretty much since you've been a conscious human being, mm -hmm. as long as you can remember. And it, they separated to the point of, of kind of painful detachment. And then, it was like, well, what does it mean to be a human being then? I don't even know. Like for the first time, I was actually thinking about my own soul. I actually don't think I really thought about my own soul properly before then, which is a scary thing to think about for the first time. Like, well, what does that even mean? What's happening? What does it mean to become a real person rather than this kind of dual ghost? And um, yeah, there were some difficult moments, again, friendship in it. I was just some moments where I was like, man, I really made a bad decision to be in a studio apartment right now, just in my own thoughts, in that room all alone. One night I walked down to the Thames and I was like, why is the Thames flowing the opposite way? I was like, it must be the moon, the moon must have. And I came up with this mad theory and went into work and looked at the map and it was just, I was just completely wrong. I was like, I just went on a walk at four in the morning. It was like, the Thames is flowing the wrong way. <laughs> and it wasn't. Um, and, you know, moments where I just got on a bus and this is like, this is friendship here. Like the kind of friendship I was, I still, I'm not a person who likes sharing emotions at all even with good friends necessarily. I find it difficult just cause, I mean, I don't think many people enjoy it. No, some people enjoy it. I don't enjoy it. Um, but just having someone who I could just turn up with, he was still living at Wycliffe Andy and I'd get the bus from Abingdon to Oxford and I'd just turn up, I'd be like, I'm just gonna sleep on your floor. And he'd be like, all right, didn't ask any questions. We just hang out, we talk about poetry, literature, film. 
Um, we'd argue, which was always fun. Um, it's nice to argue uh, when you just want to argue about something. Um, we'd argue about trifles that really didn't matter. Um, so that that was that friendship really kind of kept me grounded there. And then the church community, which I'd been lying to for so many years, all of a sudden became this boon, this place to be. And so um, I, I just began going to church and actually being like, this feels like more of a lifeline all of a sudden. Um, wonderful home group. Uh, we used to meet every Thursday and we'd have dinner together. We'd read the Bible. We'd pray every single Thursday. That was a staple of my life for five years. And they had me when I was being double and they had me when I was coming out of that and, and becoming a person. And that continuity between the two, like, I'd been found, I'd been set, like the Lord had been so gracious to me. And one of the ways he was gracious in that double life you were leading, actually now let me flip it on its head. And all that acting you did actually put you in a good place mm. for experiencing the true grace of fellowship and community. Um, we, I moved into a house with uh, Andy and a dear, dear friend of mine, Alex, who's recently married. Uh, I went back this summer for, for his wedding and we lived together for three years in East Oxford, three Christian lads. That was the COVID years, um, which for, for me, because of those guys were great years. Mm -hmm. um, I know very painful years for many, um, many people that I know, but for, for me, it was, they were a good few years. And it was in that time being with them, um, another Dear, dear friend of mine, a guy called Dave, became the assistant pastor. Great name. Strong name, some might say. Strong. Strong name. <laughs> um, and uh, one syllable. Do you go by Dave or David? Uh, no, 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 no. We're not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, we're moving on. Um, <laughs> and it was, he did a Bible study on Romans. And we went through Romans really slowly. And that was massive as well massive to go through Romans in that in that setting and it was just look at the time it never felt miraculous at the time you know I had this big moment where I basically confessed to my brother like everything which like man did I not want to do that but we were walking through Christchurch Meadows uh, me and Andy and I just I was like he was open about some of the stuff that he'd been going through. And I just thought that openness just made me feel a bit more comfortable. I thought it's probably now or never. I just went, let me just tell you about the last five years and told him and kind of like that Bonhoeffer thing. When you, when you're with a brother, they can speak Christ back to you. And he just spoke Christ back to me, told me what it meant, what it was, prayed with me. We got locked in Christchurch Meadows. <laughs> we were there for too long. We had to like, I don't even know how we escaped because the gate we came in was locked. So we must've had to go some weird way around the back. And that was all a wild time. But yeah, just moments like that was like a grounding. Um, and then, yeah, that at that point I began to think, right, what do I want to do? And one of the great, one of the other schisms was mind and heart, because in my head, for the longest time, the Bible was not intellectually stimulating. It was dumb. And what I began to realize is that is literally the exact opposite of the truth. Mm. And actually, my Christian self was 
cerebral as much as it was emotional. And I was no longer looking for some charismatic, like God flicks my brain and I see Jacob's ladder or something like that. It's, I was just like, actually, I just want to walk with the Lord and do it slowly and humbly and just wait on him for my daily bread. And I no longer had this whole thing, which I had from my teenage years of, well, I'm in this closed system. Uh, one of the things that used to give me like deep senses of despair before I came to Christ when I was in Liverpool was thinking about the unsaved. I used to obsess over it. I used to think all those people that were the classic argument, you know, a, a new atheists everywhere, like who just weren't born in the right place at the right time. And the Lord undid that and just went, just stop worrying about those things which aren't for you to worry about at this moment. Like have a heart for the lost, um, seek to share the gospel, but like don't go above your pay grade at this moment. Um, and yeah, and so, and it was at that point that when I was taking the intellectual side of things, the, the spiritual side of things that they began to um, coalesce and I began to think Christian education. Like, how could I go back and give myself what I felt like would have been useful for me, what I would have needed? I began to look into it and, you know, to cut a long story short, uh, Christian education in the UK does not exist in the way it does over here. And the Lord was just so, so very kind in leading me to Pacifica in the way he did. And um, that's kind of how I got into teaching was it kind of went hand in hand really mm. with um that whole journey of of finally coming to Christ and submitting myself to his will and then pretty soon after that came the desire to be involved in teaching and specifically Christian education i remember when we were doing the interview on zoom with you i think you were at your folks house or something you were in some like cubby somewhere yeah it could have been yeah so um and and i remember texting with with Laura and, and Hayden. I mean, it was just, it's so funny thinking about that, but, mm. um, but it was just, I mean, you know, we were meeting with people in person and then we were meeting with people on zoom and you on zoom was just like, Oh yeah. Like that's, that's probably the guy. And then when people came in to do like their sample teaching and, and, and then you did your zoom sample teaching <laughs> oh, setting my you up on the screen in the room <laughs> And, uh, oh, wow. and, and, uh, and everybody, I think Stratton was probably set it up or I forget how exactly all those, those different classes went, but it was like this guy on zoom is better than anything else. And, and that was That's just like, kind of I mean, which is really not easy. And so as far as just being what, at least by that point to us was like, this is a natural, like, this is just a natural infectious brilliant lover of people lover of god lover of literature and the kids when those sessions were done you know they felt a little form and stuff and they were just like yes please tomorrow like please 
please hire this person, you know? Right. And it was... That's, that's called being blinded by British accent, David. That's what it is. That's I remember is. your, like, Anything's setup twice was like, as good. here's where I, like, grew oh, up. Was- like, here's where I went to university. <laughs> and they were like, it's Harry Potter! <laughs> <laughs> literally, need, no shame. Need- I was like, look, it's a job interview. I literally put up a, I put up a picture of my high school, which used to be a, a, an orphanage in the 19th century. And I was like, this is where I went to high school. I was like, no shame. It's like eaves, are. dripping eaves everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they were just like, oh my oh, gosh, please. Full on. That's like, that's like legitimately though, I'm not being modest just to be awful like that and really take the praise and love it. I'm just <laughs> saying um, kindness of the Lord all the way to the bottom of that. Like no bit of that is not a kindness of the Lord because I mean, as we've just been talking about, I wouldn't have been able to teach that lesson or interview for the school at all. Like three, three and a half years earlier. Like I was lost. And mm. so the the grace that is in that, that the Lord was like setting things up for me. Like I got into Liverpool somehow and it was, I didn't even want to go and I didn't even know why I was going. And then I go down to Oxford for some reason and then all this stuff. And I think, I mean, it's just the Lord's providence. I don't know. Uh, so I just infinitely grateful for that. It has been, it has been really cool just to see. I remember, you know, we'd be talking with, um, you know, O'Neill and he's like, oh, if I get, if I get Dobbins, I can't get him here until this. And the school year's already started. Are you guys sure? And it was like, yeah, we'll do whatever we got to do to get him here as soon as he can get here. Like it wasn't, it was like, this is the guy. And, and you could just, yeah, you could just tell like in the Lord and, you know, from day zero, it was like, this is just what's supposed to happen. And, and I mean, everybody would say this, but like the blessing you are in the teacher's lounge, the blessing you are just on campus as like a colleague to people is just, it's, I don't know, there's just a level of fun and, and enjoyment and joy, um, and intellectual curiosity that just is just wonderful for everybody. It's just like everyone feeds off of it. Everyone is blessed by it. Everyone's like, oh, okay. Like you're, I'm sure you have tough days, but you're rarely in a full on bad mood or or for very long. You'll kind of talk your way clear of it. You'll laugh your way out of it or the Lord will get you through it, whatever it is. And it's just one of those things where there's a lightness about your, the way you carry yourself that is like not self-serious and yet willing to be incredibly serious about any number of things, but then having a good time, you know, and there's just something about that combo that it did. It's just like, we just feel like, oh man, we hit the jackpot with just having you as a colleague. And then now having you as a dear friend and part of this mm-hmm. little church, just, it's like, it's, it's a privilege to be uh, a chapter, you know, a part of that, of what the Lord's mm-hmm. been doing in your life. I know that's not easy to share all those things. I just want to thank you for being willing, especially to to open up a little bit. Um, I, I know it's an encouragement for people to hear different ways that the Lord finds us and different different ways that the Lord doesn't give up on us. And and I know that, that there will probably be people that we never meet who will hear this and be encouraged that wherever they're at right now, um, even if there's just that 5%, somewhere in their heart and their soul that is not giving up on on faith or on jesus um that might be enough that yeah. might be just enough for the lord to to make good on so amen jordan thank you so much for having this this conversation cheers my friend mm-hmm.